All right, I know that was a little bit of a stark contrast going from communion to that, all right? And I realize I'm probably a really cold, hard person, and you're better than I am, but that was hilarious. Uh, that was that was funny. I mean, because you, you know what you're—I mean, at least that's what I'm thinking. Like, you look at it, and you're like, how can they be so stupid? I mean, like, they get so wrapped up in, in texting that they ignore everything that's going on around them. And yet, we do the exact same thing. We can get so wrapped up in our little world that we miss what's going on around us. Like, like have you ever been in a conversation with someone and suddenly you realize you're having to ask them to repeat something because you were so busy, like, you know, preparing supper or checking email or checking Twitter that you missed what they were trying to say to you. Or maybe you've missed a really beautiful sunset right outside your window because you were distracted by your TV. We all have these issues. In fact, probably worse if you're at work and you see a coworker and you say, hey, how you doing? And they say, fine. And you miss the fact that their face reveals they're not fine. But you don't notice it because you're so busy thinking about your own day and schedule and what's going on inside of you. It, so often we miss what's going on around us. You know, so we might laugh at them, but we got to realize that really we're laughing at ourselves because we're not that different. I also think this illustrates a spiritual reality. I think that God is all around us and he's with us and he's even speaking to us. I believe that God speaks through his scriptures and he speaks through art and he speaks through creation. And he speaks through conversation and he speaks through his spirit. And yet so often we miss it because we're wrapped up in our little to-do list, our schedule, our worries, our struggles, our pain. And we miss Sometimes what's going on around us. This last month, in the month of February, we did a series called The Gospel. The four parts to that series were that we need to continually learn the gospel so that we can think the gospel, live the gospel, and then speak the gospel. Well, today we start a new series out of the book of Colossians that, goes, that basically continues that series out of February and keeps it right on going. Because Paul, who wrote this letter, was basically trying to get his readers to think the gospel, live the gospel, and speak the gospel. And really what he was trying to do was he was trying to help them keep their eyes on Jesus. Because they were living in a world where things were trying to distract them. And he feared that if they allowed these things to distract them, if they got caught up in their own little worlds, that they would walk into things spiritually and sin and get hurt. And so to spare them that pain and embarrassment, he's trying to write them a letter to help draw them out so that they would see Jesus. And so that's why I want us to look at it as a church family. For us to have yet again that reminder that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Because as we do, it might help us to not walk into things spiritually. So would you join me in prayer? So Heavenly Father, uh, we are here today to worship you. And part of our worship is learning. We are here to hear from you. Uh, you wrote these ancient uh, letters and, and books through these, these people. And, and you wrote them to a certain people at a certain time. And yet, you're so amazing and so profound that you embedded truth that extends even to this day. So, Father, no matter where we are at on our spiritual journey, would you help each person here hear something from you? That something from your scriptures would resonate with them, and they would walk out of here with their eyes fixed upon Christ. So, Father, I pray you'd help my voice and my energy to be strong enough 
But ultimately, Lord, it's not about me. It's about what you want to and need to say to your people that have gathered here today. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. If you brought a Bible with you, would you open it up to the book of Colossians? If you do not own a Bible, I invite you to stop back by our Give and Grow table. We've got two different translations there. Uh, We will find the one that fits you best. If you have a smartphone, we encourage you to download a Bible. And then on Sundays, you could whip it out. And then the great thing is you have your Bible with you on Monday and on Tuesday and on Wednesday. So totally feel free to use a digital Bible as well. For those of you who have absolutely nothing because you're afraid of phones and you're afraid of paper, uh, I've got the scripture up on the screens for you. So that all of us can read this together. Uh, The book of Colossians, we're going to start in chapter one. We're going to do this book in three weeks. So basically kind of one chapter each week. So today we start with chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God, our father. Let's pause and just kind of look at some of the background on this letter, just to kind of set the stage so we know what we are about to hear. You see there in the very beginning, this is written by Paul, as well as his kind of protege, uh, the guy he's mentoring, Timothy. Uh, Paul is responsible for writing the majority of what we know as the New Testament. Uh, Paul was known as Saul, He was a Jew who was very zealous for the Jewish faith, and he used to travel around trying to arrest people who proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah. Until one day, as he's on his way to a city named Damascus, he runs into Jesus, and he ends up realizing he was wrong. Jesus really was real, and he really was the Messiah. He died on a cross, he rose again from the dead, and Paul met him. And it totally changed Paul's life. And so rather than travel around trying to arrest people for, you know, for being Jesus followers, he goes around trying to help people become Jesus followers. And, and so Paul began a pattern of ministry over time. He would travel to a city and he'd begin to preach the gospel. As he would preach this gospel, some people would hear it and believe it. And those believers would then begin to comprise and become a church. And as he would disciple them, he'd raise elders, pastors up within them, and then leave the leadership of that church to those elders. And he would then move on to another city where he'd begin the pattern again. But sometimes I think Paul missed his friends. He missed these churches. He wanted to encourage them. Sometimes I think he would get word about something that was going on. And so to continue to pastor, to continue to kind of be involved, he would write them letters. So almost always his letters were going back to a group of friends, someone that he had previous relationship with, except with the church in Colossae. We do not believe that Paul planted the church that was in Colossae. In fact, most scholars don't even think he ever set foot in Colossae. The closest he ever got was when he lived in Ephesus for three years. And that was about 100 miles west of Colossae. So you might be thinking, well, then how did the church in Colossae get started? Well, it's believed that some of the believers in Ephesus, under Paul's preaching and leadership, ended up doing the same pattern of ministry. In fact, we believe one of the guys is a guy by the name of Epaphras. We're going to read his name here in just a little bit. But in in chapter 4 of this letter, as you get to the end, in typical first century letter fashion, Paul writes and says, hey, all these people who are here with me in Rome, they send their greetings. And so he says all these names and that. And one of those names is Epaphras. What we think happened, or at least what I think happened, is that Epaphras came to Christ in Ephesus, 
grew up within the church, and then when Paul left, he felt this call. Maybe he was from Colossae, and so he goes back home, and he starts preaching the gospel. He does the same exact thing he saw Paul do as he preaches the gospel. Some people believe to the gospel. They start to follow Jesus. A church starts forming, and suddenly Epaphras finds out he doesn't know what he's doing. Pastoring is hard, and so maybe he thinks, I got to learn from the guy who led me to faith. Well, Paul is in prison in Rome, and so if perhaps Epaphras gets on a ship, goes to Rome, locates Paul, and starts telling Paul, here's what I did. I went to Colossae. I preached the gospel like you did. These people believed. Now there's a church. Help. What do I do? And Paul hears about this church, and he gets excited. And out of that excitement of hearing about a, the start of a church in a city he's never been in, he wants to write them a letter. And notice how he addresses that letter. He says, to the saints and faithful brothers. Now, ladies, don't take offense that he only says to the brothers. All right? the, the Greek word there is actually very generic. It basically is just in a reference to all who would be part of the, the church family. Right? But if we're honest, he, you don't really need to add the word ancestor. Some translations do. But you don't really need to. Because look, he says, to the saints— and we all know that there's no way a guy could become a saint, all right? There's no guy who's good enough. So when he says the saints, it's clearly the women, right? Okay, there's a bad joke. That really wasn't that funny. We'll make a note of that. Um, but the word saint there, so often in our culture, we think of a saint as someone who's like really, really holy, like super spiritual. They're just better than the rest of us. That's a saint. But that's not a biblical definition. If you start looking through the scriptures, you'll see that a saint is anyone who follows Jesus. The idea is that, yes, a saint is holy, but when you place your faith in Jesus, the scriptures talk about how the righteousness of Christ gets imputed to us. It's like it comes to us, it covers us, it becomes ours. Even though we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it, and yet when now when God looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sinful messiness, he sees us covered with Jesus. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, which means we become holy and blameless. We become saints. So yes, guys, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a saint, despite my joke earlier. If you follow Jesus, you're a saint. Christ's holiness is yours, which tells me that even though this was written back in the first century to a group of believers in the city of Colossae, that if you're a saint, if you're a faithful brother, if you're a follower of Jesus— you need to listen up because what Paul wants to say to them, I think applies to us. So after Paul gets through all of these formalities of a typical first century letter of, of, hey, here's who's writing this, Paul and Timothy, here's who it's to, Paul then starts in with the bulk of the letter. And this is where we really see his excitement. Verse three, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it always does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. All of that that I just read in the Greek is one sentence. 
I think Paul is just a little bit excited. He's so excited he forgets to use a period. All right? It's just one big long run on sentence. I think his second grade school teacher would be embarrassed. All right? He just goes on and on and on. And notice what happens in his excitement. It, first thing is that he thanks God. In his excitement of hearing of this church, he just bursts forth into praise. He, he, he begins to worship God. It comes out in the form of thankfulness. And because he's so thankful, notice the second thing. He begins to pray. He starts to pray for them. And Paul doesn't just say, hey, guys, I'm praying for you. I mean, that's what I often do. Hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. And I try to make it a point of when I say that, I pray right then and there. Because I know myself, I'll probably forget within, you know, 60 seconds. You know? But Paul doesn't do that. He doesn't just say, hey, I'll, I'll pray for you. He actually tells them, here's what I'm praying. He does that down in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. What is it that Paul is praying for them? He's praying for their spiritual growth. He, he's saying, I'm praying that you'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will. You would have all spiritual wisdom. You'd have understanding. You would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In other words, everything we looked at back in the, the uh, month of February, that they would begin to think, live, and speak the gospel. Because when you really look at this, you start realizing Paul is not just excited about this church. He's not just excited that he can thank God. He's not excited that he can pray for them. Really what he is so excited about is the gospel. Notice back up in verse 5. Halfway through verse 5, he says this. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Why is he so excited about this gospel coming to them? Because if you think about Paul's story, it's the gospel that changed his life. And now he's heard that the same gospel has come to them, that they heard it, they received it, and he knows it's going to change their lives too. Because everywhere he's gone, he's noticed this gospel changes everything. As he's come into a city and he starts preaching the gospel and some people believe, he's seen their lives changed. And then he goes to another city, and he sees it happen. And as he travels around, he's now hearing this gospel is so powerful. It doesn't just change the lives where he goes. It even changes the lives of people where he hasn't even been. That's why he's so excited. Because this gospel is moving beyond just him and his ministry. And it is beginning to change lives, including those in Colossae, and including those in Waverly, and Shell Rock, and Clarksville, and Janesville, and Denver, and on and on and on. But you know, sometimes when it comes to the gospel, we make a mistake with it. We start to think that the gospel's actually about me. Like that I'm the center of the gospel. For those of you who have followed Jesus for a while, think about how often the gospel gets shared and the way it gets stated. 
We say things like, well, God loves you. That's true. Absolutely true. But sometimes the emphasis is that God loves you instead of God loves you. Or or we tell people like, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And over time you start rethinking, oh, this gospel, it's, it's about me. No, the gospel is for you. The gospel is about Jesus. You are not the center of the gospel. Jesus is the center of the gospel. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. That's what Paul wanted to get across to his readers. Because he knew that if they would keep their eyes on Jesus and not think of themselves as the center of this gospel, but Jesus as the center of this gospel, they wouldn't go and spiritually walk into things. That's why he begins to write one of the most beautiful, poetical descriptions of Jesus that I've ever heard. And so that you can hear it and kind of capture it in a little more beautiful way than hearing my croaky voice read it this morning, I found a video that gives us some imagery with it. So would you uh, focus on the next five verses through this video? I absolutely love this passage of Scripture because it just so vividly portrays Jesus as so much more than we often think he is. So I want to walk through it phrase by phrase with you. It's worth taking the time today. The first phrase is that he is the image of the invisible God. And if you ever walked into a dark room, yeah, pretty much every hand should go up. Right? Even if you know what's in that room, you still walk around like this. Right? Because you don't want to run into something. Because you're, you, you're pretty sure you know where it's at, but you're not quite sure. But if you pull out a flashlight, start shining it, suddenly you're walking around. No problem, because you can see everything. Throughout time in history, people have approached God like this. They're not quite sure who he is, what he's like. And so they've come with fear and there's, there's trepidation. But Jesus is like our flashlight. He's the visible image of the invisible God. He lets us see God for who he really is. Like, for instance, how do we know that God is love? I mean, the Bible tells us God is love. Well, how do we know? Well, you look at Jesus. You see, he showed ultimate love by going to the cross to die in our place. That is love. No greater greater love has a man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Well, Jesus laid down his life for his enemies so that we could be reconciled back to God. That is love. So how do we know God is love? We look at Jesus. Uh, The scriptures tell us that God cares for you. How do we know? Well, just look at how Jesus lived his life. He fed the 5,000. He he healed the masses. He taught them. He he told them about the kingdom of God. He showed immense care for humanity. So Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. You're not quite sure who God is? Look at Jesus because he is the perfect image of God. But that's not all. He is also the firstborn of all creation. In our English-speaking Western mindset, we hear that word firstborn, and we think chronologically. And if you stop and think, well, if he's the firstborn of creation, does that mean Jesus is the first thing ever created? Well, no, he's God. God wasn't ever created. There's not been a day where Jesus did not exist. So why does it say he's the firstborn of all creation? Well, in an English, I mean, I'm sorry, in a, a Eastern mindset, an ancient Jewish mindset, it wasn't so much about chronology as it was about authority, about position. Take the story of Esau and Jacob, for instance. 
Uh, Esau and Jacob were twins, but Esau was born first. So chronologically, he's the firstborn. However, when they were older, probably, actually I should say a rebellious, stupid teenager. Sorry, teens, not meaning to insult you. Esau ends up selling his birthright to his brother over a bowl of soup. I hope that was some delicious soup because it was expensive. By handing over the birthright, he allowed Jacob to become the firstborn. That's why when you talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're not talking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Because Jacob became the firstborn. Even though chronologically he was not born first, he took on that position. It's about authority, position. Which means, Paul is trying to say, Jesus isn't the first thing ever created. He's the one who is over all of creation. He is in authority. But he's not done. He says that for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's wanting his readers to realize just how awesome, just how majestic, just how glorious Jesus really is. But he's not done. He goes on. And he is the head of the body, the church. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that. All things hold together. Which means the reason you don't just drift off to space is because Jesus is holding you with gravity. The reason your arm doesn't just fall off is he's holding it there through your skin and your muscles and your tendons and your cellular structure. And so when you feel like inside emotionally, you can't hold it together, he can hold you together. You can turn to him. He knows you intimately. He knows your deepest fears. And he loves you. And he can hold you together. But that's not all. Paul says next, and he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, last week, uh, well, I guess, yeah, two weeks ago, Jeff Linnell, Leanne, and I got to go to a conference together. Um, the theme of it was called Hero Maker. And the idea was that sometimes within church world, pastors and staff and key leaders will, in a sense, make themselves the hero. They like what they do. They like how they serve. And so they hold on to like a, a position within the church and they start to make it all about them. But really what this conference is encouraging us to do is to be like Jesus. Jesus, who had every right to demand all the attention and authority and worship because he was God. Instead, he raises up these disciples, invests in them, and then says, all right, guys, you got it from here. I'll be with you to the end of the age, but go, spread my gospel, expand the church. You will do this in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He raises them up and unleashes them. And if we are to be following Jesus, we've got to do the same thing, which means the Riverwood Church is not Aaron Bird's church. It is not Jeff Willis's church. This is his church. He is to be the head of this church. And it is all of us together following his leadership, his headship. It is to be about him. Paul's still not done. He next says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There's that word again, firstborn. Firstborn of the dead. Again, it's not about chronology. Jesus in the scriptures is not the first person to ever resurrect. If you go back into 2 Kings chapter 13, there's a really crazy story about Elisha the prophet. He's died and he's buried. 
Well, a funeral is going on. And all of a sudden, some Moabites start coming in and they start, they're going to, they're like raiders. They're coming in and the, the funeral procession gets scared. So they just throw the body of the dead guy into the tomb where Elisha happens to be buried. As soon as the body hits the bones of Elisha, the guy resurrects, pops up. I, I'd love to have been there and seen his expression. Like he pops his head up like, what's going on? Where are my clothes? You know, like that would have been a really crazy moment. In the, in the gospels, Jesus stands in front of the tomb of Lazarus, his friend, and calls him out, and he comes out. So if we're talking chronologically, Jesus is not the first person to have ever resurrected from the dead. However, to show it really is about authority, Jesus' resurrection had a lot more impact than those other two. Because those poor two guys had to die again. How'd you like that? Go through death twice. But Jesus died for the sins of the world and resurrected and it is changing everything. Lazarus' resurrection, it, it would have impacted his family. It would have impacted some of the region. But that impact would have faded away. Jesus' resurrection, it's not fading. It's expanding. And it is as powerful today as it was when it happened. That's why Jesus is such an authority. He even has authority over even death itself. Which means that if your life is in Christ, when you die physically, it's not over. You are alive spiritually. Jesus is over death itself, and he will resurrect you. That's why then Paul says this next. For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you were with us during our Christmas series we spent the whole series in John chapter 1. And we saw that in John chapter 1, verse 1, John describes Jesus as the Word. And it says that the Word was with God in the beginning, but that also the Word was God. Jesus is fully God. God, it says here, was pleased to fully dwell within the person of Jesus. Yeah, he was fully human. I mean, he got hungry, he got tired, he had emotions, and yet he was still fully God. And so God was pleased to dwell in him. Also notice what God was pleased to do. God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Do you notice what Paul just did there? He's pointing to Jesus the whole entire time. And as he's coming to a close in his poem, he brings it right back to the gospel. Jesus is the center of the gospel. And the reason that you can be reconciled to God is because of his blood on the cross. It is all about Jesus. That's what Paul is saying, guys, keep your eyes on Jesus. Here in a few weeks, I'm going to get the opportunity for, I think, the 15th or 16th year to be a baseball coach. I've, I've taught Little League since my oldest daughter was five years old. And uh, it's starting up here pretty soon. And my kids are getting old enough that I don't run into the same mistake that I used to. But I used to every year have some kid who inevitably close their eyes. Like, here came the ball at them, and they would just kind of shirk their eyes back, and they just kind of put the bat out there, hoping like, to make some contact somehow. And I'm going to tell you, it rarely ever works, right? Sometimes there's a surprise, but usually the ball ends back in the catcher's mitt, or honestly, if it's Little League, it usually ends up at the backstop, and the catcher has to run and go get it, right? It's, it's really comical. Uh, if you like Keystone Cop type stuff, come to a baseball game, and we'll keep you entertained for hours, right? However, really good hitters do this. 
This here is Jose Altuve. He's the second baseman for the Houston Astros. He led all of the major league in batting average this last year. And it wasn't even close. It wasn't like by a couple of percentage points. He was like, I think, like 13 percentage points above everyone else. Like, he slaughtered the field. He's so good. Notice where his eyes are. He is locked in on that ball. He watches it all the way. And think about it. That ball is going probably 92, 95, maybe 98 miles an hour. Right? It can get from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's mitt in far less than a second. And he watches it the whole way. I think if baseball had been invented when Paul had been around, he'd be yelling like a coach, keep your eyes on the ball. Keep your eyes on Jesus. If you don't want to go and run into things spiritually, if you don't want to be tripping up in life, if you don't want to have this sin messing up everything, keep your eyes on Jesus because he's the center of the gospel, which changes who you are. So now we ask ourselves, all right, so keep our eyes on Jesus. But how? How do we keep our eyes on Christ? Paul tells us by remembering the gospel. Verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. After pointing them to Jesus, saying, here's who Jesus is. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of the dead. All the fullness of God dwells in him. He's so amazing and awesome, and everything's about him. But remember where you were. Before your faith was in Jesus, you were alienated from God. You were in spiritual darkness. You were an orphan. You were spiritually dead. But when you heard the gospel and received it, Everything changed. You go from the domain of darkness, he said back in verse 14, into the kingdom of the sun. You go from being separated from God to now being connected to him. You go from being an orphan to being an adopted child of the king. You go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. So sometimes when you feel like you're getting off, maybe, you know, you're getting distracted by the things of this world. You're, you're wrapped up in your own little things. Sometimes what it means is look back and realize, man, I was a sinner separated from God. And yet God loved me so much. He, Jesus went to a cross and died for me. And sometimes it just snaps things back into perspective. But I sometimes, you know, I have to remind myself, okay, but how do I go about remembering the gospel? Well, develop patterns of, of, in life where you're continually coming back to it. There's a reason that Riverwood has what we just consider a very simple pathway. Gather, grow, give, go. It's what we think that, that scripturally that, that God just calls us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I would suggest just do gather, grow, give, go. Just do four things. Just commit yourself to gathering to worship. You know, sometimes I, I think we treat Sunday mornings like, you know, hey, it's really nice when I can go. But, you know, I'm tired today. It was daylight savings time. You know, I've got a really bad cold. You know, I'm not feeling the best. So, you know what? It won't matter if I go or not. You know, and that, there's nothing wrong with maybe, you know, sometimes you, you, you need to sleep in. You know, I want you to take care of yourself. But sometimes we just treat it like, that's eh, an optional type thing. And yet God tells us in Hebrews to not stop meeting together. Like something happens when we lift our voices together in song. 
when we're hearing the same message, when we're praying together, when we celebrate communion as one body, when, when we have conversations before and after the worship gathering, things happen here. Sometimes we can't even see it, but God's using it to shape and mold us into that image of Christ. And by coming and partaking of communion and singing, we are reminding ourselves of this gospel message. So yeah, I get it. Sometimes it's, it's, It'd be nice to just kind of skip out. Sometimes it's the day where you're like, I don't want to go, but I'm going to go. Not out of duty, because I believe that God could do something that today. And who knows, you may come and hear exactly what you need to hear. God's going to say something through a song. You may connect with someone where you say something that encourages them, or vice versa, they say something to you that suddenly turns it around, and you're going to walk out going, I'm so glad I came. Also, gather and grow. At Riverwood, we talk about a two-handed approach to growth. If you want to grow spiritually, you want to see, you know, what Paul was praying for the Colossians there in, in verses 9 through 14. If you want to see that kind of thing in your life, then I just encourage you, get into the scriptures every single day and talk to God. And then get into a growth group. Just get into a place where you're having conversations, where together you're opening up the scriptures. We have barely even covered this today, you guys. Today has been like a rock skipping across. I'm mad at the guy who said, decided to do verses 1 through 23. All right? It's me. I shouldn't have done this in the three-week series. This should be like nine weeks. It's so rich. So if you're not in a growth group, get in one. If you are in a growth group, get there this week. Because you're going to get to open up Colossians 1. And you're going to get to go in so much more depth than what I talked about here today. Get into it. And then when you're in your growth group, not only are you in the scriptures, but then you find out what's going on in one another's lives. And suddenly you start praying for one another, start caring for each other. It is so much fun for me on Sundays to see you guys who are in growth groups. You start, you know, seeing each other and you catching up. How are you doing? I'm seeing hugs. I see people praying for one another. I'm seeing it in groups. God does something great. If you want to help yourself to not be walking around and spiritually run into things, you want to get your attention on Jesus, get into a growth group. But also because our lives so often end up wanting to revolve around ourselves, we also need to give. Give of your time. Go to the food bank on Tuesday and remind yourself that there are some people who aren't going to be able to make it through the month without that extra food. Go and volunteer at your kid's school and let yourself see the kids that your little ones are around. You know, if you're at lunch, kids, at school, and you see someone sitting by themselves, go and serve them by sitting by them. Yeah, they may be the weird one, but you know what? We're all weird. Go and love them. Serve because when you get out of yourself and you start serving others, it makes you remember Jesus. And it helps you get your eyes fixed upon him. And that's why our last thing is go. I believe that if you are a follower of Jesus, it is not about coming here to put in your time, to sing some songs, to hear a message, put in some money in the offering bag, and then you're good to go. It's the idea of you come here to be immersed in the gospel, to connect with one another with your creator, so that we can then disperse you out into the world. You are to go and be a blessing. You are to continue the same pattern of ministry that Paul and Epaphras did. You're to go into your workplace. You're to go into your neighborhood. You're to go into your home. You're to go into your service clubs. And you are to love the people there. You are to be a blessing. And when God raises up the opportunities, you are to speak the gospel into it. Because those might be the words of life that someone else needs to hear. And when you start speaking those words of life, maybe you could experience what Epaphras possibly experienced. Finds himself going, Whoa, the gospel's powerful. It changes lives. Look what happened. Now, you won't be able to go and run to Paul, 
but you can't run to Jesus. You start saying, all right, Jesus, I've shared the gospel. Now what do I do? And you will see Jesus clearer than ever before. That's why I encourage you. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And the way to do that is to remember the gospel. Build in the patterns to remind yourself daily who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And you'll find yourself not only living a changed life, but even changing the lives of those around you. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help each and every person here to live out this gospel and to even speak it. God, I want to say thank you for the people in here that have heard the gospel and have received it. Just like the, the believers back in Colossae heard this gospel and they received it and it began to change them. I thank you for what you're doing in us and how you are changing us. There are, there are people in this room who they've had their lives utterly changed by you. And they are so excited because of it. There are people here who are growing. They're starting to serve in ministry. They're starting to rise up as leaders. They're starting to, to really give of themselves to others. And this is for your glory and for their joy. And so, God, I pray that you would continue that within the Riverwood family. God, there are also possibly people here today that, that, that may not know you. And today, you're calling them to yourself. You're asking them to do what you did with the Colossians. That, that you're bringing this gospel to them. And you're opening up their heart and mind. And I pray, Father, that they would receive it and allow this gospel to change everything about them. That spiritually they would change and it would begin to change then how they think, how they live, and how they speak. I pray for the people here today that are struggling. They're living with doubt. There's a health concern. There's a family concern. There's something going on deep. And Father, I pray that you would help them to see that, Jesus, you are preeminent. You are powerful. You are marvelous. You are glorious. You are above all things. You are the beginning. You're before all things. And all things are held together in you. And that means you're holding us together. And so, Father, I pray for those in our minds right now who are struggling. Whether they be someone who's learned, just learned that their child has a birth defect. Or it's someone who just found out they have cancer someone who found out they didn't get the job. It's the person who right now is struggling and doubting. And I pray they would know that you're holding them together. And because you hold them together, they can go forth and live out this gospel. So Father, I pray you'd help us to keep our eyes upon Jesus, to remember this gospel day in, day out. That This just becomes part of how we live, how we think, and how we breathe. God, may you just in, uh, saturate us with who you are and to keep our eyes on Jesus is of no effort at all. It's actually a joy. So would you accomplish this, Father, for your glory and for our joy? In Jesus' name we pray.